Do please be seated and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and uh, you'll find it in uh, the church Bibles on page 945. I asked you to sit as we're going to read from God's Word because it's kind of long and perhaps, you know, I wanted to be merciful on those of you who've been exercising a lot recently. And so, um, Romans 9, 1 to 29. And as we come now to the Bible, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this uh, amazing morning. Thank you for the uh, testimony of uh, the work that we've already heard about. Thank you for the songs that we've been singing together. And now we come to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Romans 9 and beginning at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had uh, conceived uh, children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom? I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is God's word. Not all those who wander are lost. But why is it that there are so many who are wandering and not a few? who are lost. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it that the religious are not always particularly spiritual? And you can even find quite a bit of hypocrisy among religious people. Or have you asked yourself, how can it be fair or right that only some people are saved? And there are many, many people who appear to be eternally lost. Perhaps uh, you have a child who grew up in a Christian home but appears to have rejected Christ. Why is that? Or perhaps uh, you have just got back from a missions trip and you've been exposed for the first time to the millions of people who do not appear to be saved. Why is that? Or maybe uh, you grew up in a rather strict, fundamentalistic kind of church, and the people you knew there were quite obviously hypocrites and not very much at all like the Jesus of the Bible. Why is that? How can you be immersed in religious things and not be shaped by them in healthy ways? How is it that you can live in God's world surrounded by his blessings and expressions of his love and favor and not accept the God who made you and this world? Paul is wrestling with exactly these kinds of questions in these fantastic chapters 9 to 11 that we're looking at over the next few weeks under the title, 
Riches of His Glory. That title is chosen because it is the key to the answer to these questions. Now, you may remember from uh, our previous uh, time in Romans that Paul has made the case for the complete confidence, that is, in theological terms, assurance of the person who follows Jesus, that there is no condemnation and no separation. But now, as all who follow Jesus must, Paul asks himself some hard questions. What about those who appear not to be saved? Why is that? And so throughout chapters 9 to 11, the phrase or variations of it, the riches of his glory, is repeated by Paul as a key sort of summary. It is, if you like, the hook phrase in these chapters. So chapter 9, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory. And then again, chapter 10, verse 12, he says, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Chapter 11 Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And then chapter 11, verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Uh, In the early part of the 20th century, a then very well-known Christian pastor called Doc Latham uh, began a ministry to children. It's now gone international. It's known as Awana. Doc Latham had a key phrase that he said was at the heart of what we must teach children. Teach them, he said, their riches in Christ. Well, that's the answer for child and for adult, too. Our riches in Christ. And over the next few weeks, we have the opportunity to explore and experience those riches together. Now, this morning, we're looking at verses 1 to 29 of chapter 9. Now, this is a long section. And those of you who have been with me as we have studied Romans intermittently over the last few years will realize that this is a longer section than has been my habit in the past. That is not because uh, chapters 9 to 11 are controversial and I'm trying to skip over the well-known to scholars controversy about the Jewish question. But because from chapters 9 and on, Paul's shape of his argument is more macro and less micro. That's my view anyway. In essence, though it's very hard to find a commentary that agrees with me. Um... (laughs) I actually do not think that chapters 9 to 11 is especially hard to understand. It may be hard to believe, but that's not the same thing. I think the teaching of Paul here is clear, but it is shocking. Until, that is, we see that it's 
purpose is to lead us to revel and glory in the riches of his glory. Now, this section, verses 1 to 29 this morning, is teaching us the following. Bring your pain to the Bible to find the riches of his glory. Bring your pain to the Bible to find the riches of his glory. So when you're honest with these painful questions that we've just evoked, and then you bring that pain to the real teaching of the Bible, you will find riches of glory. Bring your pain to the Bible to find the riches of his glory. So first, your pain. Look down with me again at verses 1 through to 5. And follow along in your Bibles as I read. I am speaking the truth in Christ. See the honesty of Paul? I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Why are some people not saved? Paul, in particular here, was in extraordinary pain because his own people, the Jewish people, which Paul was, of course, a part ethnically, many of them had not received Christ. So he says, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I mean, Think of the description, great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Now, the reason for this extraordinary pain Paul was experiencing is his evangelistic passion. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's. Now, this wish is not literally possible. Uh, Paul has just finished saying in chapter 8, over and over and over again, that no one in Christ can be separated from the love of God. So what Paul is doing here, in a very Middle Eastern kind of way, is exposing the real emotional, spiritual pain of his heart. He would do anything, anything to have his people know Jesus. That's the way he feels. And of course, what makes the pain especially confusing to Paul and difficult for him is that this rejection of Jesus is not through the Israelites' lack of knowledge. Look at verses 4 to 5. They have the adoption. That is, they are God's chosen children. They have the glory. That is, the appearance of God in the temple. And 
other special moments in their history. They have the covenants. That is, uh, the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They have the giving of the law, that is, the Mosaic law. They have the worship, that is, the temple ritual. And above all, they have the promises of God. And it is from all this that Christ, according to the flesh, physically, has come. Uh, One of the most uh, famous Christian reformers in church history was a man called John Knox. Under God, John Knox was uh, the person who brought the gospel to Scotland. Uh, Knox was a fiery character. And it is said that the queen at the time once remarked that she feared John Knox's prayers more than all the armies of Europe. He was a spiritual giant. And like all truly godly men, there was a sense of awe about him, reflecting in some small fashion the infinite awe of the glory of God whom he served. It is said that one of those prayers of John Knox's was really very brief and quite simple. He prayed, give me Scotland or I die. I wonder what sort of thing it is that we say to ourselves or to God, we've got to have or we die. (laughs) Give me a wife or I die? Give me a new car or I die. I mean, God, that old car is a real clunker. I could do a new one. Give me a new car or I die. It's killing me. Give me a better job or I die. Give me fame or I die. Give me a short sermon or I die. (laughs) If I have to listen to this droning on anymore, I'm just going to get out cut out the middle and get out a shotgun and take care of my prefrontal cortex all by myself. Give me, give me what? Fill in the blank or I die. What should we as followers of Jesus feel so deeply that we say to God in prayer, give me that or I die. You know, I, uh, having thought about this a lot in the last couple of weeks, I've been asking myself that question, and I think I know the answer. And I, I've said to God, give me, and this is private prayer to God, so I won't reveal it in front of, you know, a mere couple of thousand people this morning, but give me that or I die. I've said that to God. putting your life on the line. We should care that much about the evangelization of the lost that their lost state impacts our very lives. We are to feel 
emotional, spiritual pain. Our pain about the lost state of people around us should, as followers of Jesus, cause us to pray, give us Chicago land or we die. Do you feel that when you go down on the train to work and you're surrounded by non-Christians who probably have never been to a Bible teaching church? Give me Chicago land or I die. Give us America or I die. Seen the statistics of church attendance? Are we praying on Wednesday nights in our small groups? Give us America, Jesus, or we die. Give us the West or we die. It's one thing to moan about the decreasing influence of Christianity. It's another thing to put your life on the line with God and say, give me the West or we die. Well, that's the passion of this apostle. And it is to be the passion of godly men and women today too. So what do you do with this pain? Well, you do what Paul does, which is you bring it to the Bible. And he's exegeting a number of different texts, and he finds there the riches of God's glory. So look down with me now in your Bibles, or in the text in front of you in the worship folder, either way, or on your phone, that's okay too. Verses 6 through to 29. Now this is a long section, I won't read it all out again verse by verse, but I will quote from it as I explain it, so it will help you to have it right there in front of you. Remember, this is a question that Paul has. What about the lost? Why is it that not all Jewish people are saved, given this amazing history of theirs, and then next level up of abstraction, why do religious people sometimes not get the gospel? Why are some people not saved? What's the answer to those questions? The answer that Paul gives here, I'm just going to give you in summary, and then I'll explain how I get there. The answer that Paul gives in summary is the following. God intends to display the riches of his glory by rescuing the outsider. So look down with me first how he does this. He says in the second half of verse 6 the following. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So this is why he says uh, God's word has not failed. There is a spiritual Israel that is not just the same as the physical Israel. Actually, he's already made this point in chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. No need to turn it up. I'll read it for you. He said, therefore, no one is a, a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is always the point and the purpose of God throughout the Scriptures. So having made that claim, he then gives two illustrations of this uh, statement, that not all who descended from Israel are really Israel, or that the physical Israel is not the same as the spiritual Israel. Uh, with two illustrations. First, Isaac, verses 7 to 9, and then Jacob, verses 10 to 13. And each of uh, these uh, illustrations is making the same point. The physical 
did not determine who received the promise. Now, when it says, uh, Esau, I hated, one renowned New Testament scholar says it would be better to translate that there as rejected. And the reason for that is this is not talking about God's emotion here, which the word hate conjures up in our minds, but about his choice. See, the illustrations of Isaac and then Jacob are intended to teach that the spiritual Israel was not the same as the physical Israel, and that was always God's plan. Then Paul answers two questions that, of course, arise from this statement and will arise immediately in our minds, as they did in the minds of his original readers. He answers these two questions that arise from this sovereign choice of God. The first question is in verses 14 to 18, and the question is, is this just? Is it just? And Paul, by way of explanation, goes back first to Moses, and then to the Exodus, God's rescue of his people from Egypt, and then in particular to Pharaoh. And the point that Paul is making is that we all deserve judgment, but that God's rescue is mercy. Now, you see, my friends, behind uh, this teaching here that Paul is giving is the idea, the theology, the, um, the doctrine that we humans are naturally in rebellion against God. So actually, we don't want justice. Justice is hell. That's what we deserve. Now, Paul's argument here will make no sense to you until you accept that, as the Bible teaches over and over again, as Paul's been teaching all the way through Romans, that, as it were, we are naturally far worse than we like to think, while at the same time we are far more loved than we could ever hope. So the point is mercy, not justice. Now, what Paul says about Pharaoh is, of course, deeply controversial. But again, not particularly complicated to understand, though we can't unpick every thread this morning. Pharaoh made his own choices. The text in Genesis makes that clear, too. Uh, But God hardened his heart by God's own action. Now, again, this makes absolutely no sense whatsoever until we grasp that in the biblical worldview, we are all hardened against God naturally. We are all under God's curse after Genesis chapter 3, throughout the rest of the story of human history, as rebels against God. And that what we want naturally is not God at all. So no one will be lost who wanted to be saved. 
That's part of the terror of lostness, is that the lost don't want to be unlost. They don't want to be saved. So the question, is this just, is answered by saying that justice is condemnation, but what we're talking about here is rescue or mercy. And of course, beyond the bounds of this passage here is how those two are reconciled, and we know those two are reconciled at the cross, where God's justice and his mercy meet, and therefore he can invite people to be saved. The other question that Paul asks and then answers in verses 19 to 29 is, is this our fault? Is this our fault? Well, uh, here Paul appeals, uh, uh, Paul appeals, that's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? Paul appeals. The Apostle Paul appeals around the ragged rocks the rugged rascal ran. Oh, that's better. Thank you. Here Paul appeals to the prophets for his answer. Uh, the illustration of clay and potter comes from Jeremiah and Isaiah, and he quotes from Hosea. The point that Paul is making is that we are again all naturally Merely lumps of clay. We are all naturally in rebellion against God. That is our human situation. And God has mercy. So fairness, justice, fault. Well, that's all for us to go to hell and be judged eternally. That is what we naturally deserve. Mercy is God's rescue. It's not what we deserve. It is what God freely gives out of his love. Um, Recently, there has been an earthquake in Italy. Uh, The pictures of this earthquake are awful. It's a beautiful Italian area, devastated by a large earthquake. Many people died. The other day, I um, caught a picture of a a little girl being rescued by a fireman. And the picture showed her arms clasped around the neck of the fireman as he brought her out of the rubble. I've got daughters. And seeing that face moved me. I don't know what that little girl will think in years to come as she reflects back on that moment of rescue. She may at times wonder why her or not someone else who was saved. But I can guarantee you this. She will be grateful that she found mercy. In other words, our pain, when we bring it to the Bible, and in particular to the person of God himself, begins to explore the riches of Christ, the riches of his glory. This biblical view of life that we are merely vessels of mercy, or as the hymn writer puts it, debtors to mercy alone. 
changes everything. It makes us humble. It humbles us before each other. We are all merely vessels of mercy. It gives us more compassion for each other. That person's sin may not be your sin, but you both alike equally deserve judgment, and it's only by the mercy of God that you're even here. You lie low before your fellow Christian and are not tall and arrogant next to each other. It also, you know, gives us confidence evangelistically to those outside. We Gentiles, the non-ethnically Jewish, who have received God's mercy, we are outsiders who have been brought in. And if God treated us like that, then no one is beyond the bounds of God's rescue or his mercy. No one, not, not even that rebellious teenager. Not even that college student. Not even that Muslim. Not even that politician. Evangelist uh, Billy Sunday, uh, who must have been a real riot to hear preach. You ever seen a picture of him preaching? Looks like he's about to hit you. Um, Evangelist Billy Sunday once said this, if we have no joy, there's a leak in our Christianity somewhere. (laughs) Now, as we'll see in succeeding weeks, I hope you keep on coming back and bring friends. I, I think these chapters are just... Glorious. Love to see you here. Love for you to bring friends. So we'll see in succeeding weeks. This view of the sovereignty of God is not, so this is like a um, clarification as we can't do the whole thing in one sermon. This view of the sovereignty of God is not incompatible with human responsibility. In fact, the next section of this section, Romans 9 to 11, is all focused more on the human responsibility side of the equation. Now, a long philosophical discourse on how God's sovereignty and human responsibility go together is beyond the bounds of this sermon. I have written a brief paper on that theme. If you want to research it some more, you can find it online at godcenteredlife.com. O-R-G. But this view of God and his sovereign mercy is right for us to dwell in <laughs> for this one Sunday at the very least. It is the riches of his glory in Christ. It is wealth of all nations and all the universe in him. His mercy that can be ours if we trust in Christ. That gospel offer is open to any who will respond with simple faith today. 
you can have the riches of the glory of God. Those riches are ours if we are His now. It's all completely of Him. And the pain that we bring to the Bible, well, pain is a warning signal that something is wrong. Paul's fellow countrymen were not being saved. Something must be wrong. People are not being saved throughout the world. Some people wander. Some people are lost. Something must be wrong. But as we look at the sovereign mercy of God, we realize that in another sense, nothing is wrong at all. His plan has not been derailed. He is not being caught by surprise by growing secularism. And in fact, all is right. For God is using this mercy, not what we or anyone else deserve, to pour out the riches upon us And for us to see that, to understand that, is something that will impact our identity, our sense of who we are, our value. And the lack of it is the leak in many people's Christianity that keeps them from joy. Or as we might put it, be still and know that he is God, and that in Christ his heavenly riches are all yours. Enjoy them. Let's pray together. Lord, as we uh, think about the pain that Paul had when he considered the lost and his prayer and John Knox's prayer, we take a moment to pray in a similar way. Perhaps you are here this morning. You've been invited by a friend to come check out that British guy. And... uh, You're not sure what everything means and where everything fits together. But you sense God is here. And you want to know more. Would you pray to him? Would you ask him to show you his glory? Perhaps um, you are someone who does have a big heart for evangelism. You're always inviting people to Bible studies and setting up groups to uh, watch uh, videos of evangelists. Or you, are, you brought friends to the men's gathering on Friday. And, but it still hurts. You feel so alone. The passion you have is so rarely seen among other Christians. And you think maybe I'm just out to lunch and I'm just weird. (laughs) Would you be encouraged to know that at least the Apostle Paul feels similarly? Perhaps there's someone in your life 
who you long to be saved, whether you feel that with the same passion as this or not, but you do want them to be saved, and yet, if you are honest, you think they are too much of an outsider. They don't like religious things. They can't stand all the paraphernalia that goes with church. Would you be encouraged by God's word this morning that he has a special heart for such people? In fact, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And God's desire has always been to reach out and save those who are excluded. Our Lord, you are quite the Redeemer. We love you. How could you have mercy on us? We have done nothing to deserve it. Our sins, even this week, have risen up before you as an offense. And yet you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Have mercy upon us, we pray. And lift up our eyes to see that the very redemption that we need is intended to magnify you as the glorious Redeemer. And so we bow before you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.